Well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I'm so excited to be worshiping with you. I want to invite you, open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 9, 10, 11, and 12. Matthew chapter 2, uh, verse 9 is where we're going to start. I want to take a moment and set up some context for you and what's happening in Matthew chapter 2. Um, the Magi have been led by a moving star. You may also know them as the wise men. Surprisingly, the star has not taken them directly straight to baby Jesus. In fact, there was a detour. Uh, the star has taken them directly straight to the evil, tyrannical King Herod, king of the Jews, who honestly, when they arrived, he was quite surprised to hear that there was going to be another king of Israel because, in fact, he was the king. Herod called the Jewish scholars together, and he asked them, what does the Bible, what we now know as the Old Testament, say about the birthplace of the Messiah? And they responded saying the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. And this is great news for the wise men, for the Magi, because Bethlehem was just under a seven-mile trek away, and now they were so close. And so then again, the star... Uh, brought them to King Herod, and then it begins to move again. So look with me, Matthew chapter 2, verse 9. Let's watch this. After listening to the king, Herod, they went on their way. They go outside, and here's what they see. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, all of a sudden it's back, and it went before them. Verse 10 says, when they saw this star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great Joy. Now, God has taken these men on a very unexpected journey, and I want to pose the question, why are these men so happy when they haven't even met baby Jesus yet? So let's just consider their journey for a moment so we can empathize with maybe what these wise men, these magi, have gone through. First, a star arises somewhere in Persia. They've never seen it before. They don't have an explanation for it. So they probably gather their other wise men, their other magi around trying to figure out what is this thing. But it's moving. It's not like a normal star. It's almost like beckoning them, summoning them to follow it. They know in their hearts they need to go wherever the star is leading them. Uh, they somehow know that a king is to be born, but the jury's out. Do they actually know what country they are going to? We just assume they do, but the text doesn't actually tell us that they know. Next, they travel for about 900 miles to the land of Israel, and they land on the doorstep of King Herod, and it's no wonder that they ask King Herod, where is he? who has been born king of the Jews, their assumption was probably you're the king, so did you just have a son that's going to inherit your throne? They hear from the chief priests, they hear uh, the Old Testament prophecies that tell them finally where the Messiah is to be born. And this is great news because they are just a half day's walk away from the location which the prophecies talk about. They walk outside they are probably exhausted, and the star begins to move again. And the star is leading them in the exact direction that the prophecies talk about. And finally, all of this is beginning to make sense. The prophecies and the divine intervention of God are converging together in this small town, and they don't know what they're all going to see. They don't know what is waiting for them, but they do know this, that God has taken them on a very long journey to this very place, to this very moment in time. So why might they be excited? Well, here's one. They're almost there. 
Uh, here's another reason. They finally get to leave this maniac King Herod's palace and to begin to go on their way. But I think there's like probably a bigger reason that they're excited. Because for them, the star, which was clearly divine intervention and communication, and the prophecy from the word of God agree with each other. So one thing you have to know about the wise men is that they are familiar with most all of the faith traditions and the holy books of the known world at the time. These are very, very smart, well-learned men, consultants to kings. And so one of the questions that they probably had, of which I'm guessing many of you have asked as well, is, okay, of all the holy books, there's a lot of them out there. How do we know which one is true? Here's what we know that we know. They can't all be true because they mostly fundamentally contradict each other. And it's also very like God to reveal himself. Could you imagine going through all of the work to create all of this and to create humanity and everything and then just kind of walk away and have no interest in revealing yourself? It would actually make a lot of sense that whatever made all this is going to, re is going to reveal himself with some kind of clarity. And so here they are, finally. They are knowing of the Hebrew scriptures and they're seeing this divine validation and for once, it is becoming unbelievably clear the divine is validating the Old Testament prophecies from the Hebrew Bible about the Jewish Messiah. And these men left Persia with a very specific set of theological conditions and beliefs. And they are going to go back home with a very, very different worldview, theology, and belief on what is true and right. Look at verse 10. It continues, Behold, watch this, the star that they had seen when it rose, it went before them. It's moving. They're going from Jerusalem. They're moving toward Bethlehem. They see this until, and finally it stops, and it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 11, going into the house. Notice, are we at the manger scene, by the way? No, we're not. And this kind of weird. You expect in, your, in all your ideas that this is like the nativity that you've seen. Blow your brain here away, but it's not. This actually is 40 days to two years after the birth of Christ. They're in some house, probably family members of some sort. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Now here's something to note. Do you think Mary was surprised at this series of events? I actually don't think so because it seems wherever she takes this child, somebody's like, oh. Do you know who he is? I mean, think about this. The day he's born, you have angels. They all start showing up. And then you have shepherds. They show up. And then there's the prophet Simeon. And then there's Anna. And now there's these kings, these magi, these wise men, whatever you call them, from the east. And people just keep showing up to acknowledge that this truly is not just some random baby, but this is the son of God. All of these incredible people answer a really wonderful question for us, which is this. What do you do when you meet Jesus Christ. You worship. I've wondered, how did these wise men or magi worship? Did they chant? Did they bow down? And the Greek word for worship used here, it's a really, really actually special word. The word is proskuneo, and it means to bow down, to fall prostrate on your face, and to kiss the feet of a king. So what you see here is that they bowed down and they worshiped. And proskuneo is the kind of worship that is the combination of your body, your words, and your heart. It's kind of this full-orbed physical and spiritual worship. And they saw him and they bowed down and kissed the feet, if you will, worshiped Jesus Christ as their king. And as was customary, 
When you go before a king, you bring gifts. And verse 11 goes on and says, then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Each one of these gifts were really practical. If you lived in this time and you had any level of royalty or royal inclination to yourself, you would have really appreciated the practical functionality of each of these gifts. But there is a deeper spiritual theological meaning to each one of these gifts, and that's what I want to focus on. The first gift was gold. This was the medal of kings, symbolizing, by the way, Jesus' authority, and I want you to catch this, not just over a nation or Israel, but over the entire world. So we we need to consider this. There are kings and leaders at this time in the first century all over the world. It wasn't just Caesar Augustus. It wasn't just King Herod. In fact, where these men came from, they had their own set of political and religious leaders. And they made a decision to leave their homeland, to leave their leadership, to leave their allegiances, and to travel and to find a new king. And what happens when these foreigners meet Jesus? These foreigners did exactly what they were supposed to do. They worshiped. And they declared that Jesus just isn't just the king of the Jews, but he's the king of everybody, no matter from what country you were from. Gift number two, frankincense. This is the scent of worship. From where these men came from, if you went into a temple and you were to watch their worship, you would smell this kind of smell, this frankincense. And this was given to identify that Jesus isn't just a king, which the metal signified. It's actually given to signify that Jesus is fully God. He's not just a king, he's a divine king. This isn't just some random gift, by the way. As they watched the star, as they saw the convergence of the prophecies and the miracles and the divine interventions, like they were, they were getting very clear. This isn't just a normal event. Never have the stars done this before. That God is divinely intervening through the stars and communicating that whatever this is is fundamentally different. And once they realized it was the Old Testament prophecies, what we now know as the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, they could put this together and they could realize that the Jewish people were waiting not just for a Jewish Messiah, but a global Messiah. A king who would reign over the entire world in justice. And, and this king would actually be God incarnate or God in the flesh. And these wise men, these magi, are putting together all of these prophecies, and they are realizing this is a king, and this is God in the flesh. This is a sacred moment. But then the third gift, which is myrrh, it's a little bit different and probably a little bit weird. Myrrh is the symbol of death. It's an embalming oil used on a dead body. And one might think that Mary would be taken back by this, but um, I don't think she was. She actually received a prophecy before this event from a prophet named Simeon in the, Jew, in the temple in Jerusalem. And Simeon communicated to her, in more or less words, Mary, you're going to watch your son, Jesus, be executed, and it's going to pierce your heart. That you're going you're gonna to be alive, and that, and that this baby has a purpose It's not just to make you feel good. It's not just some moral story to make you be like, oh, God likes me. The baby actually has a purpose, and the baby's purpose is to grow up to be a man and to die for the sins of his people. And from the very beginning, Mary knew by the prophecies, and then this right now is just another reinforcement. You might expect all the kings to bring gold, and then one brings myrrh. She goes, you know what? 
that probably makes a lot of sense given the prophecies that have been said about him. And the Magi here are not just declaring that he's the king. They're not just declaring that he's God, but they are declaring that he is the savior of the people. In fact, the book of Isaiah talks about this suffering servant that the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, was going to be one who would actually die and bear the weight of the sins of his people on his body and his soul and his emotions. And these Magi, probably unaware of the full implications of the kind of gifts that they're giving, are actually being led by God to communicate that this child is the king of kings. He is divine. He is God in the flesh. And he is the savior of the world. So if the wise men never showed up on Christmas Eve, have you ever wondered why pastors and preachers preach on this? Have you ever wondered why it's your, in your nativity set? I have. Let me tell you the simple answer. Because what the wise men do is they bring the whole story of Christmas together. They actually show us the response of God's divine intervention brought together with his word, and the response is worship. When you meet Jesus, there is only one appropriate response, and that is to proskuneo, it is to get on your face and to worship him as your king, as your God, and as your savior. So I want to just take a moment because uh, every Christmas Eve is a very interesting uh, day of worship uh, because many of you come, honestly, for the first time to Village Church. You've never been here. Many of you, you've been dragged with your friends or your family members or your parents or grandparents guilted you into it, and you are here as a gift to your family. I just want to say I'm very glad you are here. And I wanna just take this moment with you, and not just you, those of you who are village churchers, we're here every year, we worship together, and and I wanna take this moment, I wanna ask you a simple question. Lest Christmas go by and you miss the point, have you personally made Jesus your God, your King, and your Savior? Can you say with absolute certainty that you have made a decision to trust in this Jesus as your God, as your king, and as your savior. This is the whole point of everything we do at Christmas. Christmas means nothing if it were not for the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christmas is this incredible reminder that God loves you and is offering you to be reconciled back to him. Now, one of the most just consistent lies that we hear over and over again. And nobody intends to believe a wrong thing, but if you don't really know the Bible well, there are all these ideas that creep into your mind that just aren't accurate or true. And and, and one of them is that uh, people are made right with God by being good enough. And the Bible just never says that. You'll never do it. There's There's this other lie that, well, my parents are Christians and my grandparents are Christians, so I'm good because it runs in the family and it doesn't run in the family. In fact, every generation has to meet Jesus personally for themselves. Your mother or grandmother's faith will never, ever, ever save you. It's not humanly possible. Each person needs to come before Jesus and personally trust in him as their God, as their king, and as their savior. And I have incredible news for you, and this is what I love sharing every week with people, and the good news is that Jesus was good for you. You don't have to be good enough. You never will be. That Jesus offers Salvation through his shed blood for anybody, no matter how terrible of a human you are, anybody who places their faith in Jesus. 
And so we'd be remiss to just sit here and reflect on the birth when the whole point of the birth is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the very reason God took on flesh and became incarnate. It was so that he could die and pay the price for our sins. Christmas is this big arrow that points to Good Friday where we celebrate his crucifixion and Easter where we celebrate his resurrection. And in his resurrection, God the Father is declaring that the sacrifice has been accepted. This truly is not another dead guy, but truly this is God in the flesh and his payment for sin was accepted for anybody who would place their faith in Jesus. So I wanna come back to my question. Have you personally, personally made Jesus your God your king, and your savior. And if that is a decision you wanna make today, uh, I just wanna challenge you. Tell somebody that you came with, tell somebody that you have trusted in Christ for the very first time. Maybe you never even knew you needed to, and now you're actually hearing, wait a minute, I thought I inherited. I thought it was assumed. I thought I was good because I'm better than other people. And maybe that's the decision that you wanna make today. I just wanna challenge you, encourage you. We'd love to uh, encourage you as well. I mean, we'd love to hear if that's a decision you wanna make today, but tell somebody in your life so they can come alongside of you and support you and encourage you in that way. Look back at the text, Matthew chapter two, verse 12, and here's how this passage ends. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod because evil King Herod is up to no good. He's gonna try to kill Jesus. They departed to their own country by another way. So as we close, let me share with you what we know happened with the Magi. So the Magi traveled 900 miles back to Persia. There's all this folklore around the Magi, so you kind of have to dig through the weeds here a little bit, but here's what we know. The Magi, they left Persia with a different set of theological convictions than when they arrived back many, 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 many months of traveling. And here's what they did. They told the world, they told the eastern part of the world that the Messiah, the Savior, the King, God in the flesh has been born. What's interesting is that word spread and the Apostle Thomas, sometime about 40, 50 AD, he went out west as well and he told people not just of the birth of Jesus Christ but of the death and the resurrection and that salvation is for anybody no matter what nation they are from who would place their faith in Jesus as their God, as their King and their Savior and word spread and Christianity grew among the people of the East. Fast forward a thousand years later. Genghis Khan has just died in the territory of the Mongols, and guess what has spread amongst the Mongol people? Christianity. There was a delegate from the West arrived in the East in one of the predecessors of, or successors of Genghis Khan, and, and here's a letter that this delegate wrote back in 1243 AD, like 1,200 years after the birth of Christ. This delegate writes back to his king in Turkey, and here's what he says. He says this, know that the power of Christ has been and is so great that the people of the land are Christians and the whole land believed those kings. This is 1,243 years later. I myself have been in their churches and have seen the pictures of Jesus Christ and the three kings, one offering gold, the second frankincense, and the third myrrh. And it is through those three kings that they believed in Christ and that the Khan and his people have now become Christians. Isn't that cool? If you ever wonder what happens to the story of the wise men, they go back, 
They go back having placed their personal faith in Jesus, declaring him as God, and the message spread. And Jesus Christ, the good news of Christ, spread all over the known world. I'm telling you, our God is up to something. 2020 has been a crazy year. If there's one thing I've learned about our God, he is not done. He is moving. He is drawing people to Jesus. And what we do is we come back on Christmas Eve and we just center our minds and our hearts. You're gonna get all of these incredible presents and gifts from people you love and your family and you're gonna be distracted. You're gonna eat incredible food. You're gonna put on like five to seven pounds because you ate too much. It's gonna be a blast, right? We take this moment and we center our brains, we center our minds and we say, this is about something so much more. We take this moment to say, God, whatever gift I get, would you just ground me? Let it be a symbol, Let it be a metaphor of the most beautiful gift any human can receive, which is salvation through faith in Jesus. I wanna challenge you every time you open a gift and you experience delight and joy and somebody was thoughtful and intentional, I want you just to remember this. God has given you the greatest gift. Lord, every time I open a present, remind me of what you have done for me personally through Jesus Christ. We take this time in Christmas to center ourselves because we'll just say corporate America wants to distract you profoundly for the next 36 hours. But as the people of God, we're going to say, you know what? We don't mind presence, but we're going to make sure we keep the main thing, the main thing, and we're going to have our hearts and our minds drawn to Jesus Christ, our God, our King, and our Savior. Amen? And I want to invite our um, worship team to come up, and, and uh, they're going to lead us as we close our service. So I want to take a moment. I want to pray uh, for you. Let's pray together. Father, Thank you for revealing at the right time, at the right place, through your word, your plan of redemption and reconciliation through Jesus. We agree with the angels and we say glory to God in the highest. Father, over the next 30 to 40 hours, we have the privilege to celebrate you and your plan with gifts and lights and food and family and so many other symbols. May you draw our hearts to Jesus. May you draw us to remember the first incarnation and would you prepare us for the second coming which will surely happen because you have never, ever broken a promise. Father, Son, and Spirit, we worship you now and we do this in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. When you came in, the ushers gave you candles, and uh, I want to invite you at this time to light the candles. It's our tradition, typically, to come together and light actual candles. Typically, we give the electronic ones to our kids so they don't burn the place down. But we thought, in light of COVID, everybody taking their masks off and blowing all at once might not be the most advantageous thing for us to do. So But here's the deal. Throughout 2020, so many dreams and traditions have been flipped on their head and turned over. And uh, it's been gut-wrenching and painful on so many levels. But one of the things you can never take from the people of God is our commitment to worship Jesus, to lift high his name, to remember what he's done for us, to be focused on him, to give him glory. And so despite all of the traditions unmet, despite all of the challenges and changes before us, the people of God, we worship. And so I wanna invite you to stand if you are able, and we're gonna close our service singing O Holy Night and Silent Night.